Hello everyone, this is Law for Community Workers on the Go, a podcast for community and health workers. My name is Bridget Barker and I work in the Community Legal Education Branch at Legal Aid New South Wales. I want to begin by acknowledging this recording was made on the land of the Widjibal Wyabal people of the Bundjalung Nation and on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and pay my respects to Elders past and present. I also pay my respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening to this podcast. This is the final episode in our Renting Matters series. This episode focuses on barriers to tenancy faced by particularly vulnerable tenants, people living with a disability, and also tenants experiencing racial discrimination and vilification. In this episode, we speak to three guests, Cathy from Side by Side Advocacy, Alison, a solicitor in Redfern Legal Centre's housing service, and Justin, Assistant Principal Solicitor at Marigal Legal Centre. Cathy has been supporting clients giving evidence before the Disability Royal Commission and tells us about a common theme that's emerged. A common theme that's come up with people we've been supporting to share their stories with the Disability Royal Commission is the key role that timely access to appropriate housing plays in enabling people to escape violence, abuse and neglect and also conversely how the lack of timely access to suitable housing can keep people in situations where they experience ongoing violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation. You'll also hear from Alison and Justin talk about vulnerable clients they've helped who are facing eviction by their housing providers. Cathy, thank you for joining us today on this episode of Renting Matters. Could you please tell our audience about yourself and your work at Side by Side Advocacy, including the work that your service is doing to support people in the Disability Royal Commission? Sure. So my name's Cathy. I'm a senior advocate at Side by Side Advocacy. We support people with disability with a wide range of issues. It might be simply helping them to speak up, help with planning or making complaints, particularly with issues where the person would benefit from a support that's independent to the other services they might be accessing. At the moment, I'm leading a team of advocates who are supporting people who want to share their stories with the Disability Royal Commission, which is looking at uh, violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of people with disability and how to prevent that. A common theme that's come up with people we've been supporting to share their stories with the Disability Royal Commission is the key role that timely access to appropriate housing plays in enabling people to escape violence, abuse and neglect, and also conversely how the lack of timely access to suitable housing can keep people in situations where they experience ongoing violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation. This series is part of Legal Aid's Law for Community Worker series. Would you have any tips for community or support workers who are trying to assist people with disabilities get into or remain in housing? Sure. The first one, and it might seem obvious, but it often 
gets forgotten, find out what the person wants and find out what resources they have. I know there can be a tendency to always presume it needs to be a community or social housing application. Some people have finances that allow them to do all sorts of things that we've never even thought to ask about. The other thing to keep in mind, just because a person has a disability doesn't mean the answer should be a disability service or even a service at all. If people have a very specific housing need, start early and support them to build the right team. There can be a tendency to think an NDIS review will fix things, but it doesn't always. It's really important to be clear about what the underlying issues are and how they relate to each other. Is it an issue with the physical property that the person needs or has? Or is it about the ownership of the property? Is it about maintaining tenancy obligations Or is it about supports in the home? Understanding those issues separately can make it a lot easier. The other thing community and support workers need to keep in mind is their job is not to be an expert in everything. Sometimes, even with all the subject matter knowledge in the world, you might not be in the right role to support the person with that particular issue. This is especially true if there's a potential for conflict of interest due to your role. Helping people to access advice or support from a subject matter expert or an independent advocate can be the most valuable thing you can do for a person. So reach out, find out more, ask questions is really the most important thing you can do to help someone get into or remain in housing. Thank you. You're working with people living with disability who receive government-funded disability supports. Would you please tell us what your observations are about the way the operation of these funding schemes disproportionately impacts people with disability, in particular when it comes to their housing? The most common thing is People with disability that impacts on their daily living have less choice. People with physical accessibility requirements or who need modifications to a property in particular can have barriers to accessing housing. For instance, people who are private renters don't have the same access to home modifications funding through the NDIS as someone who owns their own home would or someone who's in social housing. Another challenge can be that supports for maintaining your home very different depending on the disability label that might be attached to your funding. So for instance, people with physical disabilities might have a much easier time accessing funding for maintaining their home and thereby their tenancy obligations than a person with psychosocial disability who might have a lot more challenges convincing the funding body that that's a genuine disability support need. Another big issue that people receiving government-funded disability supports can experience in relation to housing is the pressure to move to shared accommodation, especially as their support needs increase. People who receive funding through iCare almost always get funded to have individual living situations, but people who are funded through NDIS or disability supports for older Australians can have a lot tougher battle getting the supports they need to remain independent. Another issue that's almost unique to people with disability-funded supports is the notion of shared accommodation models. So 
people commonly refer to these as group homes. When you're living in a group home, so much of your support is tied to a shared roster of care. And the person providing or the company providing that roster of care can have a really close relationship with the housing provider, which is usually a social housing provider. So decisions that a support worker or support worker company makes can actually impact on your tenancy and you don't have the same rights to provisions under the Tenancy Act in the same way that someone in non-shared social housing or private rental would have. There's also a lot less choice in terms of who you share accommodation with once you've been directed down the path of shared accommodation. You don't have the same level of choice in co-tenants or even in the type of property that you move into as someone who's choosing to move into a share house might have. There are some other common issues experienced by people who receive government-funded disability supports that aren't so much about the schemes themselves as the way that these funding schemes interact with other supports and services or even with each other. Supports like social housing and crisis accommodation, for instance. NDIS doesn't fund crisis accommodation as that's a state government responsibility. However, there's a real lack of accessible mainstream crisis accommodation. Most Crisis accommodation, for instance, you'll discover has stairs. So someone even with a small mobility support need using a walking stick or unable to climb two stairs can't access the sorts of housing supports that someone without that disability would be able to. Cathy, you mentioned the private rental market and the difficulties people have with housing modifications who rent in the private rental market. Is that because there isn't funding from private landlords or perhaps they lack the ability to do modifications to their property to assist people living with disability? That's a complex one. There's two parts, essentially. The cost of modifications can be huge. And then there's the fact that NDIS won't provide funding for someone who's living in the private rental market. So in the case of small modifications, there are some absolutely amazing private landlords out there who will provide modifications for people, small things like giving permission to install handrails or things like that. But For instance, a bathroom modification and bathroom modifications can be absolutely key to someone staying in their home can cost many thousands of dollars. So NDIS as an insurance scheme looks at return on investment. So they won't fund large scale modifications to a property that belongs to an individual person where it's a tenancy arrangement because by their rationale, there's no security of tenancy there. So that's where the big difference comes in between social housing tenants and private renters. So if you've got tenancy in a social housing property, social housing is responsible up to a certain amount of modification under the Disability Discrimination Act, and then NDIS picks up where they leave off. So it's just a much easier pathway to getting modifications in social housing. Private rental, you're generally limited to to things that can be easily removed from the property. 
Cathy, what about people with psychosocial disability or intellectual disability or brain injuries? Do they have any particular problems in relation to housing? They can do. The pathway to specialist disability accommodation is relatively straightforward for someone that has high physical support needs. They're approved for that specialist stream of social housing. For people that might have more diverse support needs or might have support needs to do with their mental health or to do with their memory and thinking, they can sometimes get caught in between that specialist disability accommodation form of social housing and mainstream social housing providers who might not have the experience or the specialist staff equipped to support them to maintain their tenancy, particularly where the way they communicate or the way they interact with their neighbours might be conceived as being antisocial. People, particularly with psychosocial disability, can be unfairly characterised as engaging in antisocial behaviour and efforts can begin by the social housing provider to exit them under those clauses. Or similarly, people with intellectual disability, psychosocial disability, who are living in group homes through the supported independent living or SDA model, the support providers may identify that they're unable to support the person and exit them that way. And the way that the tenancy has been drawn up, their tenancy in the property is very much connected with their support provider. When you say SDA, that acronym refers to specialist disability accommodation provider, is that right? It does. Yes, SDA refers to a specific modified property that's managed as a social housing property and SIL is the bit that I guess was more traditionally thought of as a group home, but quite often they happen together. And so SIL is supported independent living, is that right? Yes, and that refers to the support workers that come into the house and help you to do things, whereas SDA is the physical property. For instance, if you're a full-time wheelchair user who also uses a ceiling hoist to transfer but are otherwise very independent, you might be living in your own SDA, Specialist Disability Accommodation Unit, in a block of units like anyone else in the community. Or if you require shared supports, you might be living in a house that's specialist disability accommodation that you share with other people who also require that. And you have this a supported independent living model of support workers. And that's what people would traditionally think of as a group home. Thank you. You referred to there being different sorts of agreements for people living in those situations. So they're not simply tenancy agreements under the Residential Tenancies Act. Is that right? That is correct. People will generally sign a service agreement and they have a separate service agreement with the support provider, the SIL provider, and a separate one with the SDA provider. However, if the SIL provider says we can't support this person, that will generally be a reason for ending the service agreement with the SDA provider. If an SDA provider or a SIL provider say they can't continue to support someone, what generally happens in your experience with those people? 
generally they are exited from service for both the SIL provider and the SDA provider. Sometimes they will be relocated to a different property with the same SIL provider. Other times they'll just be told that they need to leave. So then they're basically rendered homeless. Correct. Often this will occur and the person will be sent to hospital and the hospital would be advised that they're unable to return to their home because it's not safe or appropriate. And from there, they're then looking at having to find this very scarce resource Mm. of very specialised housing. What are some other housing issues that you are helping clients with? Some of the more day-to-day issues we help people with, often it's as simple as helping them identify who's responsible for the housing issue that they're facing. People's lives aren't lived broken down into the different categories the way the funding bodies see them. So it might be helping them work out, is this a repairs issue? Is it a modification issue? Is it you just need some help to sort out those centre pay deductions and and once that's sorted, your rental issues will be resolved? So once we've helped people identify what the specific basis of the issue is, often it'll just be a case of connecting them with the appropriate specialist service. Not all issues that impact a person with disability are a disability advocacy issue. One of the most common things we do is help people link to a tenant's advisory service or a homelessness early intervention and prevention provider. I'm not a, an expert in the Residential Tenancy Act and I'm not the best person to help people with those sort of technical things to do that. But what we do find is some people who have communication support needs or decision-making support needs may find it a bit difficult to follow through on the advice or recommendations they get from those specialist services. So sometimes we'll be involved helping people to understand what's required of them or to help them follow through or pull the different pieces of advice or information together. I understand from a previous discussion that we had that you've had some great successes assisting people living with disability. The biggest success story I've had in a couple of years was when we were working with a woman in her 50s. She'd been living with her parents and she needed to leave that house on very short notice. So that required getting on board a homelessness early intervention and prevention provider and they helped her with housing pathways applications. She had an NDIS support coordinator who helped keep the NDIS in the loop of what was going on, preparing for change of circumstance reviews. Obviously, the types and levels of support you need living at home in a family household is quite different to what you need independently. There was a social housing provider who were managing access and property. And then there was a series of transitional accommodation providers. And this particular lady ended up staying in a women's refuge because they were able to have staff on site 24 hours a day, whereas some of the other TA doesn't offer that kind of thing. My role in that situation, apart from identifying the relevant departments and services that this lady needed to engage with, was to provide communication support and helping her to understand all these new people that had come into her life and what their roles were. It was also about keeping 
the woman at the centre of all of these processes. Each of those different workers had a very specific kind of outcome that they needed for their program and their service. And it was quite easy for someone who didn't necessarily feel confident with reading and writing or speaking up for herself to really push back against some of the default decisions that were being made in that situation. And so after two months in crisis accommodation, the social housing provider located a relatively accessible townhouse that was social housing stock, which had been a really important factor because this lady did need some modifications. So the support coordinator was able to arrange for an occupational therapist to prescribe the modifications. The social housing provider then made the modifications because they were quite simple ones and they were required to do it. And NDIS reviewed her plan and provided her with enough support worker hours for things like meal preparation and things like that that she'd never done herself. So that was a bit of a miracle case. To move into stock housing in two months is huge. But it really was because there were all of the players there that were subject matter experts in their domain and we all knew what our roles were in supporting this woman and it really highlighted the value of that collaborative approach to what is a really complex problem. Housing is not something we do well as a society. It's hard even if you're not facing all of these additional barriers. So really the bigger the team of experts and the tighter that plan is, I think much better chances of getting real meaningful outcomes for people. Cathy, you mentioned a change of circumstances review under the NDIS. Does that mean if someone's circumstances do change, it's possible to seek review before your plan is due for an annual review? Absolutely. And a change of living circumstances, be that you've moved house or there's been a change in the people living with you, that is absolutely a change of circumstance and you absolutely have a right to ask for a review of your plan. And one of the really important things with that is when you're doing your annual plans, make sure you describe your living situation, including the house and the people that you're living with, clearly enough that if there is a change, it's relatively straightforward to demonstrate that to the agency. So, for instance, with this particular lady who had needed to move in the plan before that, we'd included in the information about her living situation that her parents were ageing and it was likely that there would be a move happening in the future, but that we were uncertain about the timing of it because it depended on her parents being accepted into aged care. So because that information was already with the agency, when that time came that she did need to move very rapidly, it was just a matter of linking the change in circumstance back to the information that was already available. Thank you. Have you observed particular problems for people aged 65 years or over in relation to housing when they're receiving government-funded disability support? Yes. It starts with the fact, I guess, that there are a lot less options for ageing in place as a renter if you require modifications, particularly as people age, they are more likely to need modifications. If 
you're a person living in a group home that's not classified as specialist disability accommodation, for instance, you may have a lot more difficulty getting funding approved for modifications. And so that can lead to pressure to move from that home to somewhere that's either modified or to aged care. There is a widespread misconception in a lot of different areas in health services and things that people have to leave the NDIS when they turn 65. And that's just not the case. Unfortunately, the difficulties in accessing appropriately modified properties and also the misconception that people aren't eligible for NDIS anymore can lead to pressure for people to move into a residential aged care facility. Often you will hear providers talking about that being more appropriate, but often they haven't actually thought through what the problem is they're trying to solve with an aged care facility. For instance, group homes are often funded to have a support ratio of one support worker to every three, four or five residents, that's much better level of support than you get in a typical nursing home situation. Often there's also a lack of understanding that NDIS can and will fund health-related supports for people with disabilities, such as nursing care for continence and things like that. And the unfortunate thing with that pressure is that people who are funded by NDIS who are over 65 don't have the option to try out aged care and then go back. If someone has gone to residential aged care and is deemed a permanent resident, they will automatically be exited from the NDIS and they have no ability to come back. Similarly, people that are supported under Disability Supports for Older Australians, which was for people who were over 65 when NDIS rolled out, if they request an increase in their services beyond a certain amount, that can trigger an independent assessment. And if that assessment determines that the person is better supported in aged care, they will no longer be eligible for disability supports for older Australians. So that's not to say that aged care isn't the right option for some people. It is really important if you're involved supporting someone over the age of 65 receiving disability funded supports to be really clear, I think, about what the problems are that you're helping them to address and make sure you're helping them to really think through what it is that they want because some of the choices that people can be pressured to make are ones that once it's done, it's done. And that can be a really challenging situation once that's happened. I suppose too, if a person can't read or if they're not numerate, if they go into aged care, they may not be able to participate in activities in the same way that other aged care residents are able to? Residential aged care facilities can be great for people that have good social skills. A lot of the recreational activities in those settings, though, are designed for people that have sufficient numeracy skills for activities like card games or bingo. A lot of the outings are only available to people who can get on the bus relatively 
relatively independently and don't need help while they're out and about. A lot of those activities can be quite exclusionary for people that have an intellectual disability or some other kind of cognitive disability. Also, one of the things that we've seen is people with psychosocial disabilities or intellectual disabilities that may communicate in less formal ways or may respond in ways that other residents may not have experienced before, can experience a lot of social isolation. They might be excluded from dining areas and left out of group conversations. So it can be a very challenging environment for some people. And for them, it might be a much better option to remain in their home and have those supports increased there. Thank you. Can I just clarify, if you are already a recipient of the NDIS, you can continue to receive that support when you are over 65, as long as you don't enter permanently into aged care. Would that be a correct way to characterise it? Yes, largely. Section 29 of the Act deals with when a person ceases to be a participant of the NDIS. And generally, it's around when you choose to leave or it's revoked. But yes, there is a specific clause where if you become a resident of an aged care facility on a permanent basis, that after you have turned 65, you will automatically be exited. So that's quite different to young people living in nursing homes who've entered before the age of 65. They're allowed to be an NDIS participant as well as an aged care resident. But if you enter after 65, it's a very different situation. Same with people accessing disability supports for older Australians. If they start receiving certain aged care supports, they then lose funding through that disability supports funding. Thank you. If you could change something about the NDIS or I guess other government funded disability support to help people with disabilities in relation to housing, what would it be? There's a lot of talk, especially in NDIS, about giving people choice and control, particularly for people with more complex support needs. There's huge barriers to them genuinely realising choice and control over something as fundamental as who they share their home with. The one change that I could see that would make the most difference in relation to housing would be to recognise that people have a right to live alone or to live with people they have chosen and to fund the support that they need to do that. The other thing is to mainstream housing providers and accommodation support services to better on inclusion and universal accessibility. Too many people I've worked with have been forced to move or have been made homeless, not because of the disability funding available to them, but because of barriers that just shouldn't exist in mainstream community and social housing providers. Thank you, Cathy. They were all the questions that I had for you. Is there anything else you would like to add? Housing is really complicated. And I think something that can get forgotten is that people with disability are often facing multiple barriers to housing. People with disability are disproportionately affected by poverty, domestic violence, discrimination. And so 
it's quite often the case that no one service or support can help with all of these things. Sometimes it really does take a team to make this happen. It's hard. There are solutions out there. It just sometimes takes some really creative thinking and some persistence. That's a really great note to end on. Thank you, Cathy, so much for your time. Thanks, Bridget. We'll now hear from Alison of Redfern Legal Centre's Housing Service talk about how she helped a client living with a disability who was facing eviction. Alison, I understand that you have helped a client who has been terminated on the grounds of illegal use. Could you tell us a little bit about the case, the background situation and the legal issues involved in that matter and I guess also how the matter resolved? Yeah, sure. So this client was a public housing tenant, an elderly man with significant uh, physical disabilities um, as well as mental health issues. And he was being terminated by the Land and Housing Corporation, or they were seeking termination on two bases. So under the general breach provisions under Section 87 of the Residential Tenancies Act, and as well on the basis of illegal use, which is where there is an application for illegal use and the tenancy is a social housing tenancy that brings with it mandatory termination of the tenancy unless certain exceptions are satisfied. And so the exception that is relevant to a Section 91 application, essentially in order for a tenant to allow the tribunal to have discretion not to terminate the tenancy, they need to demonstrate that either themselves as the tenant or an occupant of the property is either a child, someone in whose favour an AVO has been made or could be made, or they're a person suffering from a disability within the definition of the Anti-Discrimination Act. And as a result of one of those things, they would suffer undue hardship, the tenancy was to be terminated. So we put on a variety of different arguments. We were actually arguing that he did not breach his residential tenancy agreement. We were saying that he did not intentionally or recklessly cause or permit his premises to be used for an illegal purpose, which is what housing were alleging. I suppose the background to this, which gives a bit of context, is that due to his physical disabilities and illnesses, he was unable to complete daily tasks for himself. So including doing his washing, doing his cooking, he struggled with all of those types of things. So he'd had a friend who was coming in and staying with him a couple of days a week who was assisting him in doing those everyday tasks. And he really did rely on her for help. But unbeknownst to him, she was charged with the supply of drugs from his property. As a result, because he's the tenant, that is why housing made the application against him. We argued that he didn't intentionally or recklessly cause or permit the property to be used for an illegal purpose because he didn't have any actual knowledge about what was going on. He also did inquire with his friend about what she was doing because he did have some suspicions, but she told him nothing was happening and that he didn't have anything to worry about. And I guess he had no reason to doubt her. She was his friend and also he relied on her so heavily. I think there was an element of her potentially taking advantage of him and of that trust in her actions. And so in the end, we were also able to put on evidence that he did have a disability to satisfy the definition in the Anti-Discrimination Act because he had a mental health issues and we were able to get him to see a, a psychologist and get a report that really assisted us in putting forward that argument. So as a result of that, the tribunal did ultimately determine that 
Section 91 was not satisfied, that the landlord was not able to prove that under Section 91, with the mandatory termination, that he had intentionally or recklessly caused or permitted the use of his property for an illegal purpose. But because they had also applied under the general breach provisions and issued him with a, uh, a notice of termination, the tribunal did ultimately say that he was vicariously liable for the actions of his friend. So because he'd invited her into the property, therefore he is responsible for any actions that took place while she was there. But they did determine that despite that, in the circumstances and due to the hardship that he would face if he was made homeless, it was not sufficient in the circumstances to justify the termination of his tenancy. And so the outcome of it was that a specific performance order was made. So what that means is there was an order made by the tribunal, which just required that he comply with the terms of his tenancy agreement and specifically not to use the property for an illegal purpose moving forward. That sounds like a very complicated case, but a wonderful outcome for the tenant involved. Yeah, it was a really good outcome for him. I do think, though, it highlights an issue that we see a lot, particularly in our catchment area, because it's so densely populated with social housing tenancies. That issue is that in a lot of cases, the landlord of these social housing tenancies tends to see termination as the first option rather than trying to work with a tenant to resolve any issues or link them up with other support services. And really termination and making someone homeless in every case, but particularly for this demographic of clients who are going to suffer such undue hardship if their tenancies are terminated. Termination should be a last resort, not the first resort. And the fact that we have so many tenants having to come to us for assistance to try and get this outcome, I think that shows there are problems with the system and, and the legislation as it is. Our last interview for this episode is with Justin of Marrickville Legal Centre, who tells us about a client who'd experienced racial vilification over an extended period, which also led to him facing eviction by his housing provider. I understand you sometimes see evictions involving issues of racial vilification and or discrimination. From your experience, can you tell us about the circumstances in which those evictions arise? Look, they don't occur very often, but when they do, it can be quite a traumatic experience for our clients. I mean, racial vilification often arises when there's a connected neighbourhood dispute, in my experience. Tensions boil over, there's often a war of words, which unfortunately can lead to this vilification of our client in public in front of other people. The racial discrimination element with evictions can happen in all tenancies, but unfortunately we often see it happen to vulnerable clients in vulnerable housing situations. And we know it's against the law to discriminate against a tenant on the grounds of their race by ending their tenancy because of their race, or even by imposing certain terms and conditions which are discriminatory towards that tenant. But we often see it arising for the most vulnerable clients in vulnerable housing. I understand that you've assisted clients in these sorts of matters and that you have run multiple proceedings in different forums to assist those clients? Yeah, so uh, we've assisted a client who was dealing with termination of their tenancy for alleged nuisance through a provider. And during that process, we uncovered a long-standing history of racial vilification by a neighbour. And after reviewing the evidence for the tenancy matter, our service decided that the client has a, had a reasonable racial discrimination case against the provider on the grounds of direct discrimination 
i.e. they were being treated less favorably than their neighbor. And to assist the client, we represented them at the NCAT tenancy hearing. We had that eviction dismissed, but at the same time, in a different forum, we represented the client at the relevant anti-discrimination body, and we were able to reach a conciliation agreement that the client was happy with, and the client continues to reside in those premises. Do these sorts of situations in your experience arise more frequently in social and community housing or also in private tenancies? In my experience, it's more often in social and community housing, but I would not say that it's not possible that it happens in other tenancies. It's often something tenants don't think about, though, and it often happens at the application process for starting a tenancy, where someone might be rejected um, from a tenancy for a certain reason, which is sometimes hard to uncover. I guess at that point, there's a lot of discretion exercised and it's not necessarily a transparent process so easy for a tenant to identify that there has been discrimination. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. It would be very hard because the agent or landlord is not going to tell you the reason, being that, you know, they're discriminating against you, they will use another reason. Was there any strategic benefit to running cases in different forums for a client? It does really depend on what outcomes your client wants. So it's quite resource intensive to be running two cases at the same time in different forums. But if the client's looking to stop the eviction, but at the same time is looking for other remedies that you wouldn't get in tenancy, for example, apologies, statements of regrets, training of the staff on anti-discrimination laws or compensation for things like hurt and distress, then absolutely there's a strategic benefit in running both because the client's getting different outcomes in different forums. The other thing is, you know, lodging the anti-discrimination complaints can often bring the other side to the table in both disputes and you can often work to try and resolve it without the need to litigate. And in your experience, does that assist in the relationship between the client and the provider moving forward? It depends on how constructive the conciliation conferences go. In my experience, they're often very constructive. The client gets an opportunity to actually face the provider or face the landlord and really just tell their story. And that in itself is very important for the clients that I've dealt with. At the end of the conciliation, you often have somewhat of a resolution and a moving forward from the issue. So yes, it definitely can be. I'd like to thank all the guests for this episode, Kathy, Alison and Justin, for sharing their experience and stories with us. That's all for this episode, our final episode in the Renting Matters series. It has been such a pleasure bringing these episodes to you in collaboration with the Tenants Union of New South Wales. You can find all the episodes in Renting Matters series on the Legal Aid website legalaid.nsw.gov.au. You can also find them on the Tenants Union website, tenants.org.au. For more podcasts about tenancy issues, check out a new series being produced in-house by the Tenants Union called Renting Bites, bringing you bite-sized episodes with practical tips and advice. Renting Bites can also be found on the Tenants Union website. All of Legal Aid New South Wales podcasts can be found on the Legal Aid website or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.